everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today our guest is event expert Larry Ganson, who has a really interesting CV on LinkedIn, uh, particularly now in the wake of COVID-19, which I want to get to in a minute. But before that, Larry, it's really good to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, and I really appreciate you having me on board. Uh, like I mentioned, I've been following this, so this is great. Well, I'm really, really excited to have you on. And I first want to ask about this thing because I, I saw this thing on LinkedIn. Uh, COVID compliance officer. <laughs> yes. So what is that? What does that entail? So obviously, as, as we're all aware in the event world, um, come March, um, our event world basically crashed and burned, and we've all been struggling to uh, hopefully get events back up and running. So I had to do a little bit of a pivot to figure out what am I going to do to earn some income. Um, so I teamed up with a company called EIR, Entertainment Industry Response. And what they're doing is providing full COVID compliance for the current events that are happening. So most of the stuff that's currently happening right now are all, it's all studio work. So commercials, films, things of the such. But um, all of the unions, the entertainment unions, so Directors Actors Guild, SAG, IATSE, they developed what's called the white sheet. And the white sheet is what has to happen on site now to be COVID compliant. So all the necessary PPE, disinfecting, and specifically what they require is that there is somebody that's in charge of overseeing all of that. Um, and that's what the COVID compliance officer is. So I had to spend a month online uh, and I took uh, 22 various courses from Centers for Disease Control, World Health Organization, John Hopkins, uh, basically learning more about COVID, contact tracing and things of the such and became a certified COVID compliance officer. And that's what's been carrying me through for the past probably about five months. So I've, I've been fortunate to still travel and still do work. I'm just playing a very different role on site. That's so interesting. I'm really um, intrigued by the notion that courses and certifications could appear relatively quickly for this, right? I mean, the pandemic really just surfaced here in the US in March. I mean, we started hearing about it in February, but things started shutting down in March of this year. And in a short period of time, we've already developed a framework to create um, COVID compliance officers. I mean, I, I find that fascinating. It uh, It's interesting. I've uh, actually, I leave for Chicago this Friday to go do another event, but I did um, in August, I did the iHeartRadio Music Festival in Nashville. Um, and it's interesting because part of my job is to be in the studios and enforcing people to make, you know, to, to, to wear masks, to maintain social distancing, to do all the proper things they're supposed to do. And um, it's interesting to see the people that don't want to comply. Most everybody's been very well behaved, but you find those one or two people in the studio that refuse to want to wear the mask or they're well below their nose. And I have to be that bad cop that constantly goes in repeatedly and tells them to basically behave or leave the site. Uh, so it's a different world. Well, it's a totally different world. How's the vaccine going to come into play here? We've We've heard just in the last few days about the vaccines becoming available relatively soon here in the States, already available now in the UK. And 
big tech uh, being asked to try to find ways to, you know, have some kind of an app or something that says or that certifies that a person has uh, been vaccinated. Um, how do you see that going forward uh, at the end of this year, but really more into next year as more and more events hopefully start coming online as more and more of the population uh, become vaccinated? So, you know, it's interesting. I have um, in probably the past month, I've started to get more inquiries uh, that I have in the subsequent eight months about potential work um, coming back up. Most of it's still probably six to eight months away before a lot of these clients want to pull the trigger. Um, but I think, you know, obviously this vaccine is going to take a little while to roll out. Uh, our biggest struggle is building the consumer confidence to allow people to go back into ballrooms and arenas and uh, doing what it is we do. I think the vaccine will eventually start to build that confidence. But once again, just my opinion, I think we're still probably eight to 12 months away from getting anywhere near what we used to be in terms of capacities inside of these buildings. Um, so we face in the event world, personally, I think we face twofold. One, the consumer confidence and the other problem that's going to be um, as somebody that still does events, it's going to be the insurance policies that are going to be put into place. Um, we're all as event producers going to be required to have to carry COVID insurance now. And uh, so as for instance, I was on South by Southwest in March when it got canceled and we had no recourse. We had no backup, no cancellation fees, no nothing. We were all just kind of left out in the cold and South by itself suffered, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars in losses. Um, so my concern is going to be the insurance policies that we're all going to be required to carry for COVID are going to be challenging. Well, we could probably talk this about uh, COVID-19 uh, and its impact and your compliance for hours, but maybe uh, maybe we'll turn back time <laughs> years ago or so when there was no such thing as COVID and we had no idea about it uh, in the 2002 games. Um, so, Larry, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, of your background, uh, how you got into this space and how you found yourself working in Salt Lake 2002? Um, so I have basically been in call it the event world since I was really 16 years old. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, California and, um, a gentleman who had, he was actually the pyrotechnician for the band kiss. He had graduated from my high school many years earlier and he would come back and take certain kids basically under his wing. And he ultimately became my mentor. So when I was 16 years old, he came back to my high school and he started teaching me uh, pyro. Uh, his name was Scott Ward. I started doing fireworks with him. He kind of was the gateway that led into the entertainment industry that led into me working uh, in theme parks. So Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm, Universal Studios. And it just kind of kept growing in terms of the entertainment world. Um, I was actually at working at Universal Studios when I got the call for Salt Lake City. Um, so I flew up, did a couple of interviews with uh, Jerry Anderson and Scott Givens. Um, they were looking for a technical director uh, for the ceremonies division, and I seemed to have fit the bill. And the next thing I know, I was in Salt Lake working my first Olympic Games. All right. That's amazing. I want to go back to those early days, though, when you were 16 years old. I mean, were you were you in drama? Were you in the production uh, area in theater? How did how did you end up finding your mentor? 
That's exactly what it was. I was in drama. Uh, so I was definitely in theater. Um, I would say my, the first three years of high school, I was on stage performing and then realized, you know, I, this is not quite what I'm comfortable with. So by my senior year, I had migrated to doing uh, backstage work. Uh, and it, it really just kind of kept growing from there. But that was the, the, the start of it was theater. And how did Scott Givens and the ceremonies people find you? So actually a gentleman that I was working with at Universal Studios who had worked on the Atlanta games with Scott was offered a position. And to, fortunately for me, he had just bought a brand new house in Pasadena, California, and wasn't willing to make the move to Salt Lake. So he referred me in place of him. And that's how I got my foot in the door. Oh, that's amazing. Well, give, it, give me a sense of the timing. When did this happen? So this would have been... Um, 2000. Yeah, it would have been in 2000 is when I got the call. Um, and by the end of, uh, well, by the summer of 2000, I had uh, been offered the job and was moved to Salt Lake City. Wow, that's fascinating. That's about the same time that I joined the organizing committee as well. It was June of 2000 uh, when I joined. And why don't you explain a little bit more about the role that you assumed there? So my role shifted slightly. Um, I originally was in the ceremonies division um, under Scott Gibbons, and I was there to help with uh, opening and closing ceremonies. And then the scope of work started to grow, and we ended up kind of creating what were called special projects. And so I folded under both special projects and sport production. Uh, so I reported to both Christy Nicolay. Uh, on the sport production side, and then Scott Givens um, and Bill Cavanaugh under the special projects side. Um, so the special projects were things like uh, the ring icon that were on the side of the uh, on the side of the hill, the 500 day countdown, the torch relay route reveal, um, all of these kind of weird one off things that were happening before the games and then during the games. All right, I have to. I have to ask about the rings on the side of the map. <laughs> one of my favorite things from the games. I, I mentioned at the very first episode. That's one of the, one of my favorite memories is driving early in the morning or late at night from my home out to venues uh, or to the headquarters in Salt Lake and seeing those rings on the mountain. So, what can you tell us about those rings? Man, that was a challenging project. Um, we had to get. First, we had to get some sponsorships uh, involved in that. So um, for the life of me, I can't remember the electric company in Salt Lake that were already a sponsor, but they gave us VIK for the actual lights themselves. Um, we had to jump through a lot of hoops. So one of the things that had happened is the city of Salt Lake in the beginning had considered that to be signage, and that was prohibited. You weren't allowed to have signage of that magnitude and that large. So... Um, Mitt got involved and Mitt had many meetings with the mayor, Rocky Anderson at the time and with the city. And we were able to basically get to the point where the Olympic rings are no different than the red, the red cross insignia. So it's really not considered signage. So we were able to get around that. The next thing we had to do was find out where we wanted to place these. We found that side of the mountain where we wanted to put it and right where we wanted to put it was a parcel of land that was owned by eight different owners. So I actually had to fly around the country and go to these owners' homes and get them to specifically sign off on giving us permission. Then we had to deal with um, environmental issues. How do we get everything up there without destroying the mountainside? There was scrub oak, all, all different types of things that we... like. It was just battle after battle. We think we'd accomplish it, and then something else would get thrown in our way. 
So we finally got to the point where everything was approved. Um, and I remember uh, it was during the summer, we had to do a test. So we had to build one full-size ring on the mountain for viewability. We needed to see how it was going to look from Metals Plaza and how large scale it was going to be. So we planned a test for uh, one night. It was going to, we turned it on at four in the morning. And um, a bunch of us were down at Metals Plaza and I had a crew that was up on the mountainside and we turned it on. And within minutes, there were probably three helicopters circling this ring icon. And at this point, we wanted it to be kept secret. We didn't want anybody to know what we were doing. So immediately I'm on the radio screaming at the guys on the mountainside, turn it off, turn it off, get, it, get rid of it. Because we knew there were news choppers that were uh, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. So that's how we were able to distinguish where we wanted to put it and try to keep it in somewhat secrecy until we were able to turn it on. And then we were able to proceed and, uh, and pull it off. And it was, it was, yeah, it looked great. It worked well. Uh, nowadays with technology, we could have done so much more, but back then, you know, led walls and things like that weren't quite as, uh, as obtainable. Well, yeah, right. Nowadays, I mean, you can just fly drones, you know? Yes, actually you could. Yeah. um, But I, I love those rings. Um, and they, like I said, they were one of my very favorite memories of the games. Uh, it was definitely goosebump moment for me to see those rings. I had no idea how difficult it was to actually come up with that. So (laughs) that's really, um, really, uh, illuminating. I I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, what other uh, interesting special projects uh, did they have you work on? And what were some of the uh, weird challenges that you had to face while you uh, tried to make them a reality? <laughs> there were several. So uh, pretty quickly after 9-11 had happened, um, it was probably within about four days, um, Mitt had reached out to Scott Gibbons and said, look, I want to do something uh, on the side of our building to kind of signify our support and everything that's happening in the nation. So Scott came to me and said, Hey, Larry, what's the possibility of hanging an obscenely oversized American flag on the side of our headquarters? Um, and I said, well, the the first challenge is let me find the flag. Um, I was fortunate. Uh, one of the guys that I worked with was John Whitaker, um, who, uh, was in charge of stadium of fire down at BYU. Um, he was on the opening and closing team. He had had a massively oversized flag from the stadium of fire and said, we can use this flag. Then we had to get permission from the building owners uh, to hang this flag on the side of the building. So we got all of that into play. And what we thought would be relatively easy to basically hang over the side of the building turned out to be uh, <laughs> a considerable challenge. The first time we unfurled it and put it over the side of the building, it just about took about five of us off of the building. Um, it was such an oversized parachute. Uh, we all kind of miscalculated how much wind was going to take that thing away. So once we got it back up and uh, up onto the top of the building, we, I actually um, repelled off the side of the building and hung stringer cables down the side of the building to help keep the flag closer to the glass. So what we thought was going to take about four or five hours took about three or four days. 
but ultimately, we were able to pull off getting that American flag on the side of the building. I don't know if you remember seeing it, but for me, that was a really big moment. Oh, it was uh, it was iconic um, seeing that big flag uh, off the side of the building. Several people have actually mentioned that in the podcast as some uh, as an important memory for them seeing that that flag. And I don't remember. Maybe it was Amy Murray who participated in dropping the flag down. Amy was up there. I, yeah, I called a whole bunch of people from my floor. I said, I need bodies. I need people to help me. And so I like Amy Murray, Kelly Swiatoga, everybody came up and all just held this flag to try and keep it from flying out across Salt Lake City. So was rappelling off the side of the Wells Fargo Tower part of your original job description? <laughs> Not even remotely. That was both um, me being bold and stupid at the same time and doing way more than I should have done. But it was fun. I love doing it. That sounds really scary. <laughs> I'm I'm not a fan of heights. I don't know if I would have the courage to, or I could muster up the courage to go up and and go off the side of a building to help a flag unfurl properly. But uh, kudos to you for doing that. I don't know if I have it in me anymore. Back then, in my younger days, I, I definitely could. And I also remember that. John Whitaker and I had to spend the night on the roof of that building. We fell asleep because it had taken so long to get it up that we just grabbed some packing blankets and we spent the night up on the very top roof of our headquarters. <laughs> I, I I don't even know what to say. I mean, I'm just laughing here. That That is crazy. Uh, and I know that you've been in this business a long time, so you've probably done a, a, a series of crazy things, but where does it rank, you know, <laughs> repelling off the side of a building in terms of all the crazy things that you had to do either for the Salt Lake games or other events? Um, the repelling doesn't rank that high. I've done a lot of, uh, very crazy, stupid things throughout my career, but, um, as a whole, Salt Lake definitely ranks up there as one of the absolute top events that I've ever done. Um, I've been fortunate to do uh, a couple of other Olympic games, but something about them being um, not only in North America, which makes that a little bit easier, but also just the impact of what 9-11 did. Salt Lake as a whole was just incredibly meaningful. It was for a lot of us, I think, who worked at that event. You talked about the impact of 9-11. So what were the impacts on the work that you had to do? What did you have to adjust to accommodate um, the changes that followed that terrible day? So one of the things that I was in charge of was I was in charge of the fireworks um, globally uh, for the entire games. I hired, um, I brought a, a gentleman named Kevin Kelly, who has much, much more pyro experience than me. He comes from Disney and I've known him for years. So I brought Kevin on board to help with all of the, uh, the pyrotechnics for the games. After 9-11, obviously the security protocols were incredibly different for what we had to do and how we had to move forward. And here we were literally bringing explosives onto various sites. Uh, so we had to jump through a lot more hoops than uh, we probably were subsequently going to have to handle. Um, one of the more interesting stories uh, that happened to me personally. So for the closing ceremonies, we had, um, I want to say it was 12 remote fireworks sites scattered throughout the city that were part of the finale. We had them um, 
uh, along with the stadium, we were over by Hobel Zoo. We were spread throughout the whole bench of the mountainside. And one of the sites was the golf course for the University of Utah. The night before closing ceremonies, um, somehow the security guard that was on site fell asleep. Somebody snuck onto the golf course and stole six of our pyrotechnic shells, our larger size shells. Nobody really knew this. Uh, this had happened at the time. So uh, hands down to, to date, this is the most stressful moment I've ever, ever had to do. I found out about it about, um, it was about five hours, five or six hours before gates were opening for closing ceremonies. I was at Rice Stadium. I had to go upstairs into the room where Scott Givens, Mitt Romney, Frazier, um, Jerry Anderson, they were all in this same room that overlooked the stadium. And I had to go in there and explain to them what had happened. That's pretty stressful to go in and talk to your bosses and say, so we've had six pyrotechnic devices stolen uh, from our from our fireworks site. And I remember uh, Frazier just kind of looked at me and said, OK, do me a favor, Larry, just step outside for a moment while we while we talk. I said, okay, no problem. So I stepped outside of the room, knowing who all of these people were in the room. And, and also you had the head of FBI, the head of SOCOG, so all the security protocol people were in there. I couldn't have been outside that door for more than three minutes and my cell phone rang. And I answered it and said, hey, this is Larry. And it was a female on the other side. And all she said was, this is so-and-so with the FBI, can you please confirm the following? And immediately she read back my full legal name, my social security number, my address, like everything. She knew everything about me. And so obviously what was happening when Fraser asked me to leave is in that three minutes, they obviously, the first thing they wanted to do was rule me out as a suspect. So they pulled me up in the information, they called me to verify who I was, and I was sweating, like I was really freaked out. And then Scott opens the door and says, come back in. And the next questions from the head of the FBI were, what kind of damage would these fireworks do if they were to get into the stadium? Um, so we kind of went down that trail. Um, you know, at that point, it, you had to think in those terms because we just didn't know who stole them, what their intentions were, what was going to happen. Uh, fortunately, nothing ever happened. What we all thought was, so the fireworks use what's called quick match, and it burns at a rate of about, um, I, I might be wrong on my specs, but it's about 18 feet a second. So it burns extremely fast. What we all thought was that maybe by the 4th of July, we were going to hear of some kids that blew off their hand or did something really stupid because they didn't know how to handle these fireworks. But nothing ever came of it. We never found them. We don't know who stole them. We, hold this, we held the security company. Uh, somewhat accountable because their their guy fell asleep. But we were very fortunate that nothing ever came of it. But needless to say, I was sweating bullets. You wonder if it's going to be a situation like you see on the news where someone finds some World War II bomb in their garage <laughs> or hidden up in the attic or buried in the backyard after 70 years. You know, <laughs> these fireworks eventually surface. That's an incredible, incredible story. So when were you able to finally breathe a sigh of relief? Did you have to go through the entire closing ceremony sitting on pins and needles? Or did you feel like, oh, you know what, I think we're going to be all right. And that closing ceremony is going to be fine. No, I, pins and needles the whole time until 
honestly, until the entire crowd was cleared of the stadium, I don't think I really was able to kind of have a sigh of relief. So I was pretty stressed out for several hours. Now, coming back to the fireworks, we've had a couple of people talk about the procurement of these fireworks and the, I don't know, auditions, for lack of a better term, uh, <laughs> that were held out in Tooele in the middle of the night. Yes. Yeah, that was one of the, um, Scott and uh, Mitt were the ones that um, wanted to, we had so many inquiries to the RFP when we sent it out. Um, and having come from a, a fireworks background, I knew who I preferred to use, but I knew that we had to send it out for, for, um, for multiple quotes. And we had at least 12, if not 14 companies reply back that they all wanted to be involved. So when I mentioned that to Scott, Scott, uh, went into Mitt's office and they said, what if we did a shoot off? Let's see who kind of the best of the best are. So that was um, kind of a press thing that we did, but it was beneficial. So we did schedule that out in Twilla. Um, we had Mitt and Fraser and Scott and Sarah Weissman and a couple of others that all acted as judges. And then we took those scorings and kind of compared it to the quotes. And that's how we were able to narrow down who we wanted to use for the fireworks. Well, I've got to hear about more special projects. What other what other things you have here? Because this is like really cool stuff. Um, so, I mean, a couple of the other things we did. So my very first one was the 500 day countdown um, where we did that on. We um, unveiled um, one of the graphics of a young figure skater on the side of the building and out in Gallivan Plaza. Um, we did the 500 day countdown mark. So that was the first major event that I did for Slack. Um, and it turned out to be really great. So most of the, the, the team were in Sydney at that point, cause that was the 500 day mark for them. Um, so like Mitt and Scott and all of them were all in Sydney. So we did a simulcast with them as well. And that turned out to be really, really great. Uh, another one we did was we revealed the torch. We did this in two locations, the route of the torch relay. We revealed it on both the ice skating rink that was in Gallivan, and then we also did it at Rockefeller Plaza for the Today Show. Um, and I remember for the Today Show, we started that load in at midnight um, and loaded it in all night. We did the Today Show segment the next morning, and John Whitaker was with me, and the two of us had been on the ice for so long that our bodies couldn't adjust their temperature. I remember us both going back to our hotel rooms in New York and neither of us could fall asleep because we literally couldn't get the chill out of our system. We were just so uncomfortably cold from standing on the ice for about eight hours. It was really painful, but that went well. And then when we did the torch uh, reveal in Salt Lake City, um, Scott wanted to uh, have the ice light on fire. Now, they had prepared to also do that for the opening ceremonies itself. So what we did is we kind of used the torch route as a test to figure out what's the best chemical base to use on the ice to be able to light it on fire. So we did that. It worked out great. And then subsequently, that's how they ended up lighting the Olympic rings on fire uh, on the ice during the open ceremonies. Which was cool, right? I mean, that was really awesome to see that light on fire but were there any ideas that scott or other people came up with that just were not tenable i mean they ended up in the dustbin because they were either too expensive or they just were physically impossible so you know there was a lot of um there was a lot of blue sky ideas that definitely were thrown around for uh metals plaza 
um, Salt Lake Olympic Square, a lot of different things that I know that we wanted to do that ended up having to get scaled back. One of the things that we compromised on was uh, for the fireworks finale, we brought in uh, eight 24-inch shells, which at the time were the largest pyrotechnic shells ever brought into North America. Originally, Mitt wanted to do, geez, I think he wanted to do like 25 of these 24-inch shells. Um, These had to be custom-made in Japan, put on a special boat, shipped over here, and then the techs that built it, the Japanese technicians, had to come with it. And they're the ones that physically had to install them and load them into the giant mortar guns. Um, And so we faced too many problems with that many shells. A lot of it was... um, the fallout debris, uh, how loud they were going to be, and really just the cost. Each shell was extremely expensive. Uh, so to get to a level of 20 to 25 shells, we just couldn't pull that off. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but a, a previous guest on the podcast uh, talked about um, the first night, I think at Metals Plaza, where the fireworks went off, but maybe they didn't go off quite high enough and some embers fell on some of the tents and overlay uh, in the Metals Plaza. It, yes, that's it's definitely a hazard that happens with pyro. It did happen there. Um, and uh, they just had to do some adjustments. Uh, Kevin Kelly, once again, oversaw all of that. And uh, they just made some adjustments on angles and things of the such. Um, I do remember one night at Metals Plaza that somebody had accidentally left um, the caps to the shells, the tops of them. So not the actual shells themselves, but just a box of the caps, which are really not dangerous at all. But they left a small box of them on the stage prior to doors opening. Um, and, uh, security noticed it and we had to do an evac of the entire site. Uh, so they could figure out because to them, it looked like an explosive. They weren't sure what was going on. Um, and so I did have to come down on the technician that accidentally left a box of caps on the stage because it's kind of a pain in the butt to have to evacuate an entire side of that magnitude. Why, no doubt. Well, tell me what a day in the life of Larry looked like during games time. I mean, were you running around like a chicken with your head cut off to all these different venues or or was it pretty relaxed or were you you know, spending time in the mock or, you know, at Rice Eccles, I mean, or at the Meadows Plaza. I mean, what was your, what was your life like during games time? My life was incredibly hectic during games time. Um, very, very long days because I was also working with Christy Nicola on sport production. We were spread out uh, amongst every venue. Um, so spent a lot of the time in the car driving from venue to venue and then trying to get onto venues. Um, definitely I would start, uh, you know, my day started about 6am. I wouldn't end until about midnight, um, because I had everything still going on between the Olympic icon rings, what was happening at, at metals Plaza, Salt Lake Olympic square. So I was trying to support, uh, as much and as many as I could. I had a second with me, John Dunn, who it was invaluable to me. So we were able to kind of spread and and split up our um, our duties as much as we could. But they were long, long days for <laughs> three solid weeks. And then, of course, you know, straight after that, we went right into shifting to Paralympics. So that was my first time of learning that when you do an Olympic Games, uh, commit to about a good six weeks of just no sleep whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 
I want to, there's a, there, there are several things I want to touch on there. Uh, but one, one of those things is the sport production side. So we've talked about some of the interesting special projects that you did, which are fascinating, but talk, talk a little bit, if you don't mind about the sport production side of things and your responsibilities there and some of the things that you, uh, delivered there on the sport uh, production, or as we now say, sport presentation side of the fence. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Christy was really the visionary behind it of this is, she came with a lot of experience and said, this is how I kind of envision we want to support the spectators that come to these events. How can we give them um, kind of a profound um, experience? So uh, I really handled the technical end of it. Christy was much more the creative side and uh, the producer side of it, and then would just come to me and say, how do we build a stage here? How do we make sure the video board can be seen and audio and things of the such? So I would then work with sponsors like Panasonic and others, and then um, various vendors to do things like build the stage at the bottom of the half pipe at Park City, um, make sure that all of the video content was where it needed to be. We had hired um, a company called Big Screen Network at the time, um, Bob Becker, who is just incredibly profoundly respected in this industry. Um, we brought him and Paul Khalil on and they handled making sure that all of the content for all of these video walls was just spot on. And they've done it for many, many Olympics and they still do it to this day for the Super Bowl and for a, really a lot of NFL events. So big screen network was invaluable to us at the time, uh, to, make sure that all the video boards did exactly what we needed them to do. Um, so really my, my job then once the games were up and operational were to just go from venue to venue and make sure that all of the infrastructure that we put into place was operational on a daily basis. So we had teams at every venue and I was just there to support them and make sure they had everything that they needed. Um, we definitely had challenges. I do remember up at soldier hollow um, just days before the games somebody, one of the construction workers had accidentally cut um, one of the fiber optic cables that was uh, buried underneath the snow. And it was a, what we call a 24 strand. So there were 24 tiny strands of fiber that had all been severed. Well, you cut fiber in the middle and it is incredibly difficult to have to fuse and put back together. Um, so we spent a couple of days with some technicians out there to have to repair things like that. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, another thing that you that you mentioned there was that not only you had to deliver a, an Olympic Games, but then right after that, you've got to deliver a Paralympic Games. So what was that like transitioning from an Olympic to a Paralympic Games? So the transition wasn't that hard because you really you're kind of taking more away than you are putting more in because we downsize in the amount of venues, but we leave a lot of that infrastructure in place. The biggest pivots were things like opening and closing ceremonies, where it's just a, a very different sort of a thing that's happening. For me, uh, I, I wasn't really familiar with what the Paralympic Games were until I came on board with Slock. And I have to admit that um, it was one of the most profound events that I've ever done. Um, not having an understanding of it, but then watching it and understanding these athletes and what they're accomplishing was unbelievably uh just uh, it brought so much to me so much joy it was great to watch and that's actually another thing that i wanted to ask you about as you were working these incredibly long days and you're running all over the place 
did you actually get an opportunity to, to see some of the competitions that took place? Yeah, I did. I was very fortunate that um, I got to see a lot of the competitions and I got to see a lot of them directly from the field of play because we had that type of access. Um, so I remember watching um, short track speed skating at the Delta Center. Um, and I was literally right on the finish line when, and I've forgotten the athletes names, but it was the final race that the Australian won the gold medal because everybody else had wiped out and they had wiped out not but three feet in front of me. And it was just, it was so amazing to watch and it was fantastic. Um, and the same with like, uh, ice figure skating, the pairs figure skating. Um, I don't know if you remember, there was a little bit of a scandal that went on, um, with the gold medal round between the Canadians and I think it was the Americans. It was the Russians or the Russians. Is that what it was? Yes. Um, so yeah, I was right there, um, with the Canadians when all that was going down. And then we had to kind of revamp how we were doing the medal awards and everything else. So I was very fortunate to be kind of right in the face of a lot of events. Yeah. And the, uh, and that uh, short track speed skating uh, finale, that's one of the famous ones, right? And I think the the athlete was um, Stephen Bradbury. I think it was who was the Australian athlete who ended up yeah. crossing the finish line when everybody else fell down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, I did, um, I have a couple of pictures that I had taken. They're a little bit blurry, but right then, and forgive me for not remembering, the, the famous American short track speed skater. It was uh, uh, you know Apollo Anton Ono. Apollo Anton Ono. Yes, Apollo. It was probably about five years ago. I was doing an event in Las Vegas, a corporate event, and Apollo was the guest speaker. And the two of us were standing backstage, and I pulled it up on my iPhone, these kind of blurry pictures, and I, I introduced myself to him and said, you obviously won't remember me. I said, but I worked in the Salt Lake Games, and I said, I just wanted you to see these pictures of me literally right at the finish line as he had wiped out. And he just laughed and just kind of gave me a pat on the back and said, that's, that's really great. Thank you for showing that to me. So it was a really cool moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he was really pleased. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's probably more like, you, would, you annoy you God, get away from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, this actually takes me to, to my, my next question for you, right? Is the, so the games, uh, it's an incredible experience. You work the Salt Lake 2002 games, but they come to an end, as all of these events do. So where do you go from there? And what was something that you learned while you worked uh, during the Salt Lake 2002 games that you kind of took with you as you continued on in your career? So, um, you know, I was fortunate right after the Salt Lake games. They kept me on board for quite a while, actually. I was there for almost an entire year um, doing closeout um, and then we were also starting to plan a one year anniversary event that um, I oversaw from a technical aspect as well. That's when they had built the um, uh, the Hoberman Arch and the torch had gone up to Rice Eccles. And so they wanted to do a big anniversary party with those. So I was fortunate that I was able to maintain work with Slock for another year. Um, I also did a couple of freelance things, uh, really with Christy Nicolay. She brought me on board to go do a couple of other events with her. And it was soon thereafter that I opened up my own company, my own event production company from a technical end called Carpathia uh, Event Production. So I've been able to maintain that and have a really good client base for a very, very long time working with the NFL and other Olympic Games. Christy has been very good to me about, um, I went over to Vancouver for a year. I worked in Russia. So I've, I've been fortunate through Christy that she's been able to kind of pull me along with her. Um, 
as for learning lessons, um, so one of the, you know, the lessons that I learned, I, I probably learned two very valuable lessons in Salt Lake. One was delegation. Um, I definitely came from a world of handling things on my own. And I had to learn how to delegate um, because the Olympics are such a massive task. I was used to doing one event at a time where at Slock you're handling <laughs> 20 at a time. Uh, so delegation was one and patience was definitely the other. Um, I, I tend to take on more. Uh, I bought off more than I could chew, especially back then. So Slock taught me that in a very big way. Yeah. So from now on, you just say to people, uh, you dangle off the side of the building. Repel down there. I, I'm definitely much more of a pointer now and say, yes, you're right. You go do that. Um, back then I was definitely much more of a doer, uh, but I, uh, Hey, I'm 51. I can't repel off of buildings anymore. Those days are gone. Hey, I'm with you, man. <laughs> I'm, with you. I'm 53. Uh, I'm not doing anything adventurous at all. Not that it wouldn't be fun. I just don't think I could, I'd fall now would be the horrible <laughs> thing. Wow. Well, um, this conversation for me has been fascinating. I'm sure we've just scratched the surface on things. Before we get to the final segment, is there anything else that you had in your list of memories that uh, you wanted to bring to the surface? You know, it, 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 all of it was such an amazing experience for me. Definitely um, the closing ceremonies, making sure that uh, the fireworks got pulled off. I think one of the things that saddened me the most though was NBC cut away from that footage. I was really kind of bummed. We put so much time and effort into making sure the fireworks finale was so big and over the top. I was really sad to see that NBC didn't showcase it. Um, but I do also remember one other moment that was very fascinating for me, opening ceremonies, being up on top of the roof of Rice Eccles Stadium and uh, knowing that the president was there all I could see from the rooftop were, if you looked out over all the buildings, all you saw were secret service agents. You just saw rifles kind of poised in all locations. And I think I was a little worried that some secret service agent was focusing on me going, who is that idiot on the roof of Rice Eccles Stadium? Should he be up there? <laughs> Never knowing for sure what was going to happen to me. Well, you're alive. So <laughs> I think right it started. <laughs> All right. Well, Larry, this has been a lot of fun. Um, to close us out, well, we've got our three questions. And yeah. the first question is a question about music. I put it in there because music's important to me. And this is my podcast, so I make the rules. <laughs> is there a song that you hear today? If you hear it, you know, on the radio or you're, you know, on Spotify or something, the song comes up and and your mind goes right back to your time in Sully 2002. Absolutely. It would be, it's kind of a different one, but it's uh, Flagpole Sitta from Harvey Danger. Uh, interestingly enough, if, if you, I'm sure you probably know the song, you may not know the title, but if you go back and listen to it, um, uh, it yeah, for some reason, it just brings me back into, especially Park City down at the half pipe. All right, Flagpole Sitta. We're going to look for that on Spotify. Great. Yeah. Put it on the playlist because all the songs that have been nominated by all of our guests are on that Spotify playlist. So that's a fantastic addition. Now let's go to the food. Uh, is there a restaurant that you like to go to in Salt Lake City and Park City or elsewhere while you worked uh, the Salt Lake 2002 games? There was. And I think um, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it was kind of catty corner from our building. But there was a, a restaurant there called Bombara. And I don't know if it's still there or not, but we used to love going to Bombara. They made these 
house made potato chips with this blue cheese sauce that was fantastic. Yeah, uh, the Bambara that I think it's still around. I think it's still there. Um, in the hotel, is it in the Hotel Monaco or is it a different hotel? Yeah, that's where it is, the Hotel Monaco. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think it's still there. So we will make sure that gets on our map. So we've got a little website on, uh, or a little map, excuse me, on the website um, with pins in it for all the restaurants that people have nominated. So Great. fantastic. And my final question for you, you've given us so many awesome memories, but is there a what we call the goosebump moment. It's, it's a memory that makes you just feel really warm inside. Anytime you, uh, anytime your memory goes back to the solid 2002 games. Yeah, for me, it definitely would have been, um, opening ceremonies being up on the roof when the world trade center flag was brought out. Um, it was just such an awe-inspiring moment, but I just remember how quiet it was in the stadium and just this really cold breeze just kind of blowing because especially it was up on the roof. So the wind would just come through. But that was the first time that I had both, you know, off to my left vision, I had the Olympic uh, ring icon on in the mountains and just starting to see the culmination of everything come together. It was such a powerful moment. So to this day, that still gives me goosebumps. Uh, you're not the only one. A lot of us, I think, felt that, although you had a unique vantage point being up, up there on the roof. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, Larry, this has been a, a fascinating, a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing to support events, making sure that they're safe and COVID compliant, or they just want to reminisce over the Sully 2002 games, what's the best way for them to, to uh, reach out to you? So via my website is the best way. If you go to Carpathia EP as an event production, CarpathiaEP.com, uh, all my information is there and I can be contacted there. I have to ask, where does the name Carpathia come from? I mean, there's a mountain range there in Europe, right? Uh, uh, that, that has that name, but, but how did you end up uh, selecting this name for your, for your business? The Carpathia is the ship that came to rescue uh, the survivors from the Titanic. Oh, well, perfect. <laughs> so it felt, it felt very apropos because uh, I seem to bail a lot of events out. So that's why I named it Carpathia. Well, there you go. There is a method behind that madness. <laughs> All right, Larry, it's been a lot of fun. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you again, Larry. Thank you, Christian. I really appreciate it.